0: Well, it's, uh, it's federal budget time. The month of March begins on Monday, and the government of Canada has been prom- promising us a budget for quite some time. It is rumored that we will have something resembling a budget uh, presented by Finance Minister Christian Freeland sometime in the month of March, and there are many, many Canadian groups who are inputting into the government pre-budget process. That is definitely underway. Whether they're paying attention or not, we'll know when they actually issue the budget, but The government is actively engaged right now in pre-budget consultation with all sorts of interest groups from across the country. Uh, One of those groups is a task force led by and made up of Canadian farmers who are uh, making recommendations to the Minister of Finance with respect to some considerations in the new budget. Here to talk about it is Arzina Hamir, who is a member of that farmer-led task force and who uh, is a farmer at the Amara organic farm in courtney on vancouver island arzina good morning and thanks for joining us
1: no thank
0: you it's good to have you with us it's minus one down here what's uh what's the temp outside your place in courtney this morning
1: yeah it's minus three over here oh
0: boy <laughs> so tell us a little bit about this task force that you are a member of and then we'll mm-hmm. get to the recommendations that you've uh presented to the finance minister
1: sure um, so Farmers for Climate Solutions is a group that is led by myself and, and Ian McCreary, who is a grain and uh, beef farmer from Saskatchewan. So uh, the other members include um, some climate scientists and um, other farmers from across Canada. We, What we are recommending or asking for is that the government um, include agriculture as a solution to our climate problems.
0: Okay, and, and uh, 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 do you have any indication at all as to the receptive nature of the government? As you pitch this stuff to the feds, uh, mm-hmm. are, are they are they going through the, the process of officially listening, or, or do you get the sense they're paying any attention to you?
1: You know, um, we do get the sense that there is some listening, because Um, as uh, the government was starting to let people know what was going to be in the budget, um, some of the the lines that we use uh, to describe what we're wanting for um, climate resiliency and to include agriculture in um, climate change, some of those sentences were actually used by the Prime Minister in some of his speeches. Um, A lot of staff are also very excited Mm -hmm. by The recommendations that we have, so we know that there is some receptivity happening.
0: Oh, good. Well, it also there also uh, there may just be a a more than a slim possibility. You're making a great deal of sense, (laughs) Arzina. There's there's also that to it. So let's talk about this because it sounds to me like uh, farmers for uh, climate change are like many other like-minded interest groups, very interested in reducing our carbon footprint and in the agriculture industry in Canada it's a huge industry worth billions and billions of dollars every year i'm sure there are dozens if not hundreds of ways we could modify our farming practices still obtain the same productivity levels and reduce our carbon footprint in the process absolutely doctor give re- us give us some examples
1: yeah yeah not just reduce our carbon footprint but also help with climate mitigation like that's one thing agriculture can do, is we ex- we absorb carbon from the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. So I'll give you a few examples. Um, right now, the agricultural um, community actually is a contributor to climate change. Uh, almost 17% worldwide of, of uh, agriculture is actually producing greenhouse gas emissions. So what we are um, pr- promoting is that... By reducing nitrogen fertilizer use. So, um, you know, we have a lot of chemical fertilizer Mm -hmm. used in Canada. If we can reduce our use, so instead of maximizing our yields, we optimize our yields. Um, We don't put on so much so that there's leftover nitrogen in the soil. um, Because that leftover nitrogen turns into a very, very strong greenhouse gas. So just by cutting our nitrogen fertilizer use slightly, um, we can greatly reduce the amount of greenhouse gases that go into the atmosphere.
0: Arzina, can I interrupt just, just because mm-hmm. not everyone, including me, understands the the balance of nitrogen as a fertilizer in the produ- production of food and agricultural products. So yeah. is, is the approach used right now, let's just drench everything in the stuff and, and it'll grow like crazy and, and we're good. Yeah. Uh, and, and So you're saying that we can reduce the amount that we include uh, yeah. without compromising the quality of the product.
1: Absolutely. Um, you know, by reducing, doesn't it doesn't uh, compromise quality at all. So, it is, it has been, uh, over the last 20 years, the amount of nitrogen that farmers are using, especially on the prairies, um, has increased exponentially. And so what we want to see is a, a curbing back of that. But Uh, By using uh, agrologists. So there are scientists that can support farmers by testing their soil Uh and finding out how much leftover nitrogen there is.
0: Right. Now, typically, would nitrogen be used for canola or wheat or barley or all of the above?
1: All of the above gotcha. nitrogen is, is one of the key elements that plants
0: need in order to grow okay
1: so it is um, you know very important for for plant growth
0: so even but at amara farm there in Courtney you would use some nitrogen in producing your organic crops
1: um we do but in a different form okay we don't use synthetic nitrogen which is what the the type of fertilizer we're talking about here we use compost so um, that's composted manures and composted animal products, um, and then we also use um, cover crops. Uh, we we plant peas at the end of the season. And then those actually suck nitrogen out of the air and put it into our soil. Mm. It's a pretty, pretty amazing system that plants have.
0: But on, on yeah. sort of the agribusiness grand mm-hmm. scale of farming that we see, especially on the Canadian prairies. Yeah. Uh, so uh, there's clearly a lot of room for modification of nitrogen use.
1: There is. And you know what? It's not even just a climate issue because it's a productivity issue as well. If you're putting so much nitrogen on your soil, I mean, it's expensive. It's an expensive input. And if you have leftover in your soil that's not used by the plants, that is just a waste of money. Mm -hmm. So not only will it reduce greenhouse gas emissions, but it will actually improve profitability for farmers by not applying so much.
0: Interesting. So you've asked uh, the feds for uh, an allocation of funds up to some three hundred million dollars. Were the, yeah. those uh, feds uh, the money to be set aside for your requests? How mm-hmm. would they spend that three hundred mil?
1: Um, well, they have other programs that uh, it, it wouldn't necessarily go to agriculture, and that's what we're we're trying to say is that the. You know the feds have um, spent a lot of money in other sectors mm-hmm. to ensure that, for example, um, energy sector workers who are working in um, you know oil and gas are trained in uh, green, in greener energy greener uh, energy economies. What we're asking is that not to leave farmers behind, because what we're talking about is really uh, transitioning our farmers to be more in and uh, agriculture to be more of a green energy sector. and But that requires training and skills that um, we don't necessarily have right now. So not to spend the money in other sectors, but to think of agriculture to both decrease our greenhouse gas emissions, but also um be a climate-mitigating source, so we can absorb carbon by doing things like planting trees, mm-hmm. um, using cattle as actually a way of, of absorbing carbon into the soil. So there's some really interesting techniques that have been developed li- recently.
0: It's, it's kind of ironic, isn't it, Arzina, that, uh, that uh, the, the sector of the Canadian economy closest to the land... The yeah. agricultural sector would be, would be, uh, is, is, uh, what I'm curious about is, is there resistance within the farming community, uh, regardless of whether it's uh, dairy or beef or, mm-hmm. or, or grains or whatever, or, or organic vegetables like you do? Is there resistance to the notion of modifying practices to improve uh, our, uh, our harmony with the climate? Well, you know, I would
1: say, uh, farmers have always been really um, fantastic at trying new things. But in general, they, they're a conservative bunch. Like you have some um, fantastic experimental farmers who are often the ones that lead the, the pack. And then the rest kind of follow when they see, oh, okay, so-and-so did it and it,
0: it looks it's okay. okay now. Right, right.
1: But so it's we have those people who've already taken up some of these recommendations. You know, we have farmers doing a lot of very innovative um, uh, practices, but it's the rest of the herd that we're trying to move. And that's where we need some incentives. That's where we need um, cost sharing for some of these agrology services for, you know, reducing nitrogen. Sure. the so, you know, different is, types of equipment.
0: Sure. Here's hoping, Amir, I'm, I'm afraid I'm out of time, Arzima, but uh, I'm hopeful that uh, the uh, the listening process uh, actually has some resonance to it and you get some results. Can we chat after the budget and, and we'll uh, do a post-mortem on what you got or what you didn't get?
1: I would
0: love to. So would I. Thanks very much for this morning. Good to talk to you. Yeah, you too. Okay. There's Arzina Hamir from the Amara Organic Farm in Courtney. It's time to introduce our next guest. and It's going to be a real pleasure to speak to the CEO of Ronald McDonald House Charities Canada. For the past 40 years, this organization has helped families across Canada that need to travel for health care when the unimaginable happens. Ronald McDonald House Charities is the only entity in Canada that helps alleviate some of the burden experienced by providing housing for families. Still, they can only support 10,000 families annually, leaving a significant gap in Canada's health care infrastructure. How big is that gap? Our guest is going to describe it for you. Kathy Loblaw is the CEO of Ronald McDonald House Charities Canada and joins us this morning from Toronto. Ms. Loblaw, Kathy, good morning and welcome.
2: Hello, and thank you for having
0: me. It's nice to have you with us, Kathy. You talk about Ronald McDonald House uh, across the country, assisting uh, roughly 10,000 Canadian families every year. Um, How many families are there every year in need of that type of assistance?
2: Absolutely. Unfortunately... There's up to fifty-five thousand families yeah. here who have to travel more than a hundred kilometers um, and have a child that would require specialty care at one of Canada's just sixteen children's hospitals for the entire country.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, um, Ronald McDonald House is a national organization. Kathy, are there Ronald McDonald houses in every Canadian province?
2: There is a Ronald McDonald house affiliated with each of the children's hospitals. So are okay. 16 children's hospitals coast to coast across the country, and Ronald McDonald has a house um, affiliated just steps from each of those.
0: Okay. Now, there are other organizations. For example, listeners here in Vancouver this morning, Kathy, will recognize the fine work done by Canuck Place and other individual charities across the country that also supplement and provide aid to families when, as you put it, the unimaginable. Happens, but there aren't very many of them. So there's still an enormous a number of Canadian families in distress with a sick child every year who just take on massive burdens by the sounds of things.
2: Absolutely. I mean, no one ever expects to have a sick child. And then when you do, you don't expect to have to travel so far from your community, away from your family, from your support systems to get the health care you need. But of course you do. And when we look at what it can cost a family, if you look at Vancouver, for example... You know, two 12-day stays with a family of four can cost up to $15,000 yeah.
3: out-of-pocket costs
2: for food, transportation, accommodation, child care. Um, across the country, it can go up to $38,000 for a 30-day stay in Toronto. I mean, it's just, it's funds that families don't have. They're not anticipating. And of course, the only thing that matters is healing their sick child and being close to their child while they're on that journey. So it's an incredibly emotionally, physically and financially difficult time and that's where Ronald McDonald House steps in and as you say, enables that access to health care in a way that is close, in a way that's affordable um, and fully supported. You know, every Ronald McDonald house that you step in is just an oasis of support and comfort for families. Mm -hmm. They can cook, they can do laundry, they can sleep, they can just have a moment of pause. It's, um, you know, it's part of how the pediatric health care system in Canada today exists. And I think, you know, the one thing that is probably the best news about Ronald McDonald houses is, you know, the reason we're growing is not that more families or more children are getting sick. It's that more children are healing. You know, the 16 children's hospitals across this country have had such extraordinary medical advances that more children are healing today than ever before. Right. But it's taking more treatments over longer periods of time, often far from home. Um, And that's where we step in to enable that access, to provide that infrastructure of support. Uh, that helps to make the journey a
0: little bit easier. Kathy, you're a private sector person. Ronald McDonald has uh, McDonald's, of course, one of the more successful entrepreneurial adventures in Canadian retail history. Uh, And so as a private sector person, I, I get to ask you this question because of the role you already play. Is there more, a greater role perhaps, for government in all of this support for families effort that you're so big a part of?
2: Absolutely, and we feel passionately that there is. You know, while the McDonald Houses are charitable organizations, of which McDonald's is our largest founding and forever donor partner, Mm -hmm. but the need has outstripped what any one company or any one group of individuals can do. We have many partners across the country in terms of individuals and corporations, but at the same time, we need government to step up and help us bridge this gap. You know, it's an urgent need right now. Every day that we don't grow, 125 families are turned away, and it's too much. We had 3,400 families on our wait list last year. So we've asked the federal government if they would consider a one-time capital investment of $75 million to help us double our capacity over the next five years and really move to that next level of support for Canadian families.
0: And uh, how recently has this request for $75 million been put forward? I'm assuming you're making a presentation to the feds in advance of the budget as part, perhaps, of the consultation process, Cathy?
2: Absolutely. We've been meeting individually with members of Parliament. Um, the, the request has been in process since last August. Um, our hope is that we will be able to find a way for us to continue to grow our support for Canadian families And um, the response so far has been, of course, one of great understanding, one of great recognition of the role we play and the importance of what we're doing. So our hope is that it will move forward and that will allow us to go back to the houses, expand to the next level right across the country and help more families um, off the wait list and into our homes and support them on that journey where they need so much support during such a difficult
0: time. Anyone uh, listening can go to your website, which is rmhccanada.ca, to learn more about these sponsors, because, of course, it's, there are more corporations involved beyond the forever and original sponsor <laughs> McDonald's, as you've identified them. And it, it, it's, uh, it, it's quite an impressive list of some of Canada's best-known companies. Do you, however, continue to seek support from private individuals? Can someone listening to us right now, for example, go to the website and donate a few bucks.
2: Oh, absolutely. rmhc.ca is a great place to make a donation. Pick the Ronald McDonald house that's closest to you. Um, we're always grateful for that support. Also, you can visit your local McDonald's restaurant and you can round up your order or make a cash donation or buy a cookie or a Happy Meal. You know, whatever is right for you and your family. RMHC is truly a community house. And it's taking all of us in the community to support families during their most vulnerable. And that includes individuals, corporations, McDonald's, and we hope soon the federal government.
0: A quick question to you, Kathy, and we're grateful for your time this morning, and we wish you considerable success in your approach to the government. How has COVID-19 affected your ability to deliver the kinds of services you're so legendary for?
2: Well, it's it's been difficult, just as it's been difficult for all of us in our day-to-day lives as individuals. Um, at Ronald McDonald Houses, it's just added another level mm-hmm. of worry and stress for the families. And for us, we've really had to pivot in terms of how we serve our mission. You know, if you think of the house in Vancouver, it's 73 bedrooms, and we traditionally have 73 families there.
4: Sure. Um,
2: on that journey, and a very communal and connective setting. We've had to put in more health and safety measures, more independent um, mission service, if you will, and just structure our programs differently. So it's been difficult. There's been moments of pause. We've had to reduce our capacity to enable social distancing. Sure. Um, like everyone, it's really it's had a significant impact, and of course, in the fundraising space, all charities and certainly RMHC is no different, um, have seen you know declines of, of up to thirty to sixty percent. So it's it's been a time of great challenge, um, balanced with a time of great need, because unfortunately, children continue to get sick during right. COVID, and they continue to need care so we are managing thanks to the staff and volunteers um, across the country. Our, all of our houses are open. All of our houses are serving families and um, have continued to find a way forward but it's been a challenge and we will have some changes to the facilities and the infrastructure of our houses uh, mm-hmm. to manage not only this pandemic but you know, unfortunately, if there are future pandemics. So, you know, our request of government is to help us strengthen the infrastructure of what we have so that it's pandemic proof, if you will. Yeah. And also to expand our capacity so that we can serve more families and and get families off the wait list and,
0: and out of a place of such strain. Yeah, and you use the big word, the big buzzword, with pivot. And uh, as everyone else in the yeah. service business has done in the past uh, 11 months, uh, one needs to pivot in order to provide the, the ongoing service that you, as I said, are, are, are so so famous for. Kathy, we, we do wish you considerable continuing success with the Ronald McDonald House Charities. Uh, I direct our, our listeners to the website if they're interested in helping you out in any way, R M H hc.ca. Kathy Loblaw is the boss, the CEO at Ronald McDonald House Charities Canada, joining us from Toronto this morning. Uh, Thanks for this, uh, Kathy. We appreciate your time, and uh, we'll have an eye on the budget and see how well you do.
2: Thank you so much. So grateful for the support for Canadian families. Indeed, it's our pleasure. There's
0: Kathy Loblaw. It's our pleasure, Kathy. Thanks very much. Uh, Joining us from Toronto this morning, there's uh, Ronald McDonald House Charities CEO, Kathy Loblaw. Joined on the line from Toronto by Hillary Beaumont, Ms. Beaumont is a freelance investigative journalist who has reported on stories from Canada, the United States and Mexico and is here with us this morning with a story that in fact deals with all three countries, yes including our own. We're talking about border security crossing a line. Hilary Beaumont, good morning and thank you for joining us.
5: Hey, Sterling.
0: How are you? I'm very well, thank you. This, uh, by the way, friends, can all be found at thewalrus.ca. It's excellent reporting. Hillary, you've done a lot of work on this. Uh, We had a story in Canada a few months back about a surveillance company called Clearview AI, and there's still some fallout from that. This company was um, uh, uh, taking our images and processing them and selling them and sharing with other third parties without any permission. And One of the third parties involved was the RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, whose role in the sharing of this information is still the subject of some concern, to say nothing, of investigation. So what are we talking about here, Hillary? What sort of sharing is going on and what kind of surveillance is going on?
5: Yeah, I'm really glad that you raised the Clearview AI case. That is of real national significance and concern. Um, What I was looking at was a little bit different because I was looking at international borders, which are spaces of reduced privacy expectation, which means that some of the same privacy laws that we're talking about in Canada that Clearview AI breached do not really apply at borders. When you're crossing borders, you're kind of subject to a lot of different surveillance and data collection that you normally would not be subject to,
0: true, uh, including as we learn for example it's, it's we 're not allowed to cross the land border much to the states these days, Hillary, but next time we are uh, allowed to do so we've learned recently that the American border authorities have uh, what they consider a perfect right to take your laptop or your phone and go through it at their time at their leisure and and for whatever reason they deem to be appropriate so It is a kind of a strange no man's land, anybody's border area, whether it's Canada, U.S., U.S., Mexico, pick a border. It's different, isn't it?
5: Yeah, absolutely. Um, When you mention your phone or laptop being taken, I had that happen to me in 2016 when crossing the U.S. border at Toronto Pearson. Um, And it is kind of a violating experience to have your phone taken even for just 10 minutes um, and not know what's being done with that.
0: Sure, exactly. So what's what's what the the thrust of your story, though, is about the United States uh, Border Service, ICE, uh, and the kind of uh, um, uh, biometric surveillance. They're doing eye scans and that sort of thing. What's Tell us a little bit about the, the, the types of surveillance they're engaged in.
5: Yeah, absolutely. So what I wanted to do for this story is look at the U.S.-Mexico border because this is one of the borders in the world that is seeing so many pressures from migration that in response, the U.S. Um, services of Customs and Border Protection and Department of Homeland Security have really ramped up data collection and surveillance as part of a policy called Prevention Through Deterrence, which is kind of like a Orwellian-sounding policy. Um, and they're using all sorts of different technologies along that border. Mm-hmm. They, they kind of rise as pilot projects initially, with tech companies offering them as pilots to border sheriff sure and then these things can kind of expand really rapidly and i wanted to look at that because that could potentially happen on our border or other borders around the world
0: too. indeed because uh, border agencies uh are all and and police uh and law enforcement uh, operations typically are very welcoming of new technology that allows them perhaps another tool in the box to do their job more efficiently so when someone comes forward from the private sector and says well try this out uh, Typically, they're pretty keen to do so, aren't they?
5: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I I don't want to say that this is with a nefarious purpose or anything like that. I mean, what's happening at borders around the world is there is actually increased migration due to conflict and climate change. Um, and this is something we're going to see trending upward over the next decades. And even with borders closed right now, a lot of agencies are looking at, like, how do we process people more quickly? How do we identify people more quickly? And so any technology, including facial recognition, iris recognition, that can help them do that is is helpful. Um, but at the same time, we have to be thinking about do we really want our biometric data collected in that way? And can we actually say no when that's happening
0: yeah and uh, we need to take a break here but just before we do the big the big beef or one of them about clearview ai back to that one for a second was not, not only were they gathering this information they were sharing it at, at times for a profit so that's that's the other concern not only are these uh, border agencies uh, gathering this information for whatever purposes they see fit with whom are they sharing said information do you know
5: yeah, absolutely. I mean, not only with private companies sharing information, but we also have to be wary of government databases that collect and share this information because, for example, DHS, the Department of Homeland Security, had collected um you know, millions of facial recognition images um, over the years. And in 2019, they had a data breach where hackers stole 200,000 images and leaked them onto the dark web.
0: Ah, okay. Well, then then there's the other problem with the collection and storage uh, under supposedly secure conditions, which didn't turn out to be terribly secure after all, did they?
5: Yeah, exactly. I just think that this is something we need to be thinking about when, you know, we're, we're in these areas of reduced privacy expectation, like, where is our data being um, collected? And how is it being shared?
0: Here's a quote from my guest's piece in the walrus.ca: In recent years and whether we realize it or not, biometric technologies such as face and iris recognition have crept into every facet of our lives. As in the US, the use of new technologies in border control is underregulated in Canada, human rights experts say, and even law enforcement officials acknowledge that technology isn't always covered within the scope of existing legislation and then you go on to talk about academics and journalists hillary filing access for information requests to learn more about what's going on but the efforts have been blocked or delayed indefinitely hillary beaumont is the author of this piece entitled when border security crosses a line and we were talking about facial recognition technology you went through the test hillary you went and had your your iris scan taken and uh, an interesting process it was
5: yeah, it was, uh, for this piece, I wanted to go inside a Texas jail that is along the U.S.-Mexico border okay. where they're using something called an iris scanner that basically just takes a photo of your eyes and then it creates a template of your eyes and all of the unique um, aspects of your iris and then checks that against a database to see if you're a criminal and identify you by name. Mm-hmm. And then your IRIS template is actually stored in a database that's shared with all of these different law enforcement agencies like the FBI and potentially Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Um, and I wanted to go through this just because this this pilot project started off with just one sheriff um, with a company offering the sheriff to use this technology for free, and then this quickly got picked up by 30 other border sheriffs who all wanted to use the technology, and then it allowed the company to um, ink a deal with 3,000 other sheriffs across the U.S. to Aha. use this technology. Right. So, yeah, it was, it was super interesting to go through that experience.
0: Do we know, for example, Hillary, if that kind of sharing that clearly will be taking place between all of those border sheriffs up and down the Rio Grande and beyond, uh, if they're sharing information for practical reasons in terms of illegal immigration and so on, do we know, uh, do you know, uh, for example, if the, if that group of sheriffs is sharing that information beyond their jurisdiction zone in South Texas?
5: Yeah, absolutely. Um, they they have that option to to do so. It would be shared with the FBI and other authorities. Um, and, you know, they, they do collect this information so that they can identify people. And they, they gave an example of a violent criminal that they did recognize with the iris and they were able to catch as a result of this. Um, but the thing is that all of these technologies are used on people regardless of whether they're violent criminals or not um these are also used on asylum seekers and people who are fleeing you know real um desperate circumstances sure. across the border so um they're they're kind of used indiscriminately
0: so you you talk about the technologies and their their surveillance technologies they're they're almost surreptitious in nature so the fact that they can fly under the radar is very much by design uh, and and so on it it makes it even uh less Noticeable, I suppose, but as, as these things gain more traction with more law enforcement agencies, and you use that interesting analysis of one sheriff on the, on the U.S. border being approached, and all of a sudden they have 3,000 sheriff clients because of the need for the technology. As this continues to expand, are you comfortable that the regulators are going to catch up to what they're doing in terms of the privacy requirements that one would automatically expect go with that sort of technology
5: yeah it's a really good question i think that a lot of regulation is is just so far behind yeah. the tech advancement that's happening right now so you know in in europe there are a lot of um discussions around regulation. There are like a couple states in the U.S. that have started discussing regulation or or put regulations in place. But um, in Canada, we're still having that conversation. We don't have anything specific other than our privacy laws that aren't specifically geared toward AI or facial recognition. Um, and so, I think when you're talking about borders, again, reduced um, places where you have reduced expectation of privacy, sure. um, you can't necessarily retain those rights to your data and your privacy as easily. And I don't even know how you would regulate at a border because that data is directly connected to your identity. So how would you regulate that?
0: Right. Well, and uh, I I suppose, though, as you talk to and uh, doing the homework for this very well-researched story, you talk to human rights people and other experts in security and personal uh, privacy, and and there are certain uh, expectations that regulations should exist.
5: Yeah. I think that a lot of people are concerned with just how quickly these technologies are being used and being picked up. And so um, people are rightfully pushing back against this data collection and raising these concerns. Um, But I think just like generally what's happening is that the tech sector really gets to dominate the conversation when it comes to um, adopting these new technologies. Mm -hmm. And we're not really involved in that conversation, right? Like, when was the last time somebody at the border asked you if if this was okay with you, or a tech company was like, hey, are you okay with facial recognition? (laughs) Like, we we don't really get to participate in these conversations.
0: Well, it's true, and especially at the border, because all you want to do is cooperate, yes, 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 check, 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 see ya, I'm on holidays now. You don't want any kind of hang-ups with the border, so generally speaking, you'll go along with whatever gag they're willing to, to throw at you, right?
5: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you have to catch your flight. Um, But another thing that I think is really important to discuss as well is um, just, for example, like the kiosks used at a lot of Canadian airports. um, Those, I guess, like CBC had obtained emails from the CBSA that that said that those kiosks were flagging people from Iran and Jamaica at higher rates than white people. And so we're talking about these technologies being biased and racist because of how these algorithms are trained. Um, So one MIT and Stanford University analysis found um, a a rate of misidentification of 34.7% for women with dark skin versus 0.8% for men with light skin. Mm. So we're really talking about this technology is not um, appropriate to be used when it is misidentifying people based on their skin color.
0: Yeah. When Border Security Crosses a Line is a very good read and an important one as well. The author is Hilary Beaumont. You can find her story at thewalrus.ca. Hilary, important stuff, excellent work. Thanks for joining us this morning.
5: Thank you so much for having me.
0: My pleasure. Well, tax season, here here's a downer for you after a nice description of a beautiful day. Tax season begins on Monday. Canada Revenue Agency offices open for the beginning of filing and refiling and all of that stuff effective this Monday. And of course, with that in mind, the folks at Zero, the global small business platform, uh, have released their uh, survey of well, Canadian financial literacy and particularly among Canadian business people here to discuss the results of that survey is faye pang canada country manager at zero with all the results at her fingertips faye pang joining us from toronto good morning and welcome
3: Good morning, Sterling.
0: It's nice to have you with us, Faye. Uh, the concern was, as I understand it, that there is a, a well. Uh, this, this, the headline is this: Zero. That's your company. Zero survey finds millennial small business owners in Canada tend to overestimate their financial literacy. Faye, financial literacy is a topic that on this program we have a lot of time for and have spent some time on uh, in the uh, weeks and months gone by, and we'll continue. continue to do so. Tell us about your appraisal of the financial literacy of Canadian small business people.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So we were, you know, as you, very curious to understand how something like the global pandemic was going to impact, you know, really just an unprecedented tax season coming up. And yep. so last month, we actually ran a study with 800 small businesses across Canada and uh, and uncovered some pretty interesting things. So to your point, there is a discrepancy between, you know, perceived and actual financial literacy um, among B.C. small business owners it tells us there's room for improvement. So when we polled them, you know... 78% of, of small business owners in B.C. considered themselves to be financially literate, Okay, you know, four in every five, but actually when tested, they actually only scored a C or 76%, which tells us there's a bit of a gap um, between, you know, perceived and actual and uh, potentially leaving some money on the table as it relates to their tax filings.
0: Yeah, well, that, and of course and that's why the whole thing, that's why I introduced you and this segment in the context of tax filing actually can begin as early as Monday, which of course mm-hmm. is also, uh, uh, we We've got uh, the the big uh, deadline for uh, the uh, RSP contributions. That's the big day. Monday tax offices are are open as of a few days ago. Uh, So how did you test people? What kind of questions did you ask, Faye?
3: yeah we asked a whole a whole bunch of different questions, and just to give you some examples, you know, for instance, hey if you've got an incorporated business, do you need to file a tax return for the corporation and for yourself personally? Um, you know, almost two thirds of folks answered that incorrectly, so just as an example of the type of questions we were asking to really uncover um, again how how financially literate were small businesses as related to the specific roles and, and compliance uh, pieces that they would need to keep in mind as they went ahead and filed their taxes. Okay,
0: and and so the answer, by the way, don't leave us in limbo here. The answer to that question was, if you own an incorporated business, you do have to file both, don't you? One for your business and one for yourself. Correct. Okay. Interesting that a lot of business people didn't know that. Give us some more test examples. This is interesting yeah. stuff. No, because as, as you're asking us the questions, Faye, people listening to the broadcast have, right now having their morning coffee. It's 7.37 in the morning in Vancouver. We're going to be playing <laughs> along with you here. So throw some more questions at us.
3: Cool. Here's, a, here's another one. Uh, so the question was, a cash advance from your credit card account is charged a lower rate of interest than that of your credit line.
0: True or false? Repeat the question, please. It's early in the morning.
3: Sure. A cash advance from your credit card account okay. is charged a lower rate of interest than that of your credit line. True or false?
0: Oh, now I'm, on the, I'm in the hot seat. I'm actually squirming here. I'm going to say false.
3: It is false. You're right, Sterling. Um, yeah, it is false.
0: So your, your line of credit, whatever, whatever comes out of that, you're paying the same rate of interest no matter what, the, what, what, it, what it may be called that day.
3: Yeah, and generally speaking, your cash advance is going to be uh, is going to be more
0: expensive. Okay, so how yeah. about how about another one? This is fun.
3: <laughs> um, sure. So the difference between a a loan and a um, and a revolving credit line is that fixed payments are made to loan balances, and variable payments are made to revolving credit balances. True or false?
0: I think that's I think that one's true. Is it?
3: That is true. That is true. You're right. But but 37% of uh, small businesses polled actually answered that incorrectly.
0: Well, and I suppose that we could go on have, and play a fun question to answers for the rest of this half hour. I love this stuff, yeah. eh? and you can tell. Yeah. But the, the findings are, are, are even more dramatic in terms of age groups with millennials receiving, frankly, the poorest marks uh, based on your questions
3: that's correct. Yeah, there was the biggest gap and discrepancy between where they thought they were from a financial literacy perspective and where they actually are as it related to getting the answers right. Um, and I think that's, you know, particularly um, important to underscore as 42% of them said, hey, I want to be better prepared for financial instability. As we head into 2021, it was the number one business goal that they had, obviously coming off the back of all of the instability uh, of 2020. So, sure. you know, there's this desire to be better this desire to to be better prepared but in fact a bit of a gap between where they are and um, where we think they ought to be.
0: Faye we had an accountant from North Vancouver named Doug Allen on our program a couple of weeks ago. Doug has just released a new book called A Fighting Chance the high school finance education everyone deserves and of course and I hasten to add and didn't get so uh we are we are financially illiterate uh, by design, almost as our education systems there are ten of them plus the territories doesn't seem to care a great deal about educating those in their uh, under their control uh, with with respect to financial literacy uh, and it's It's absolutely insane, but it shows uh, when you start testing particularly young people who come out of school confident that they are financially literate, only to start a business, Faye, and discover, oh my gosh, I didn't know any of this stuff
3: yeah yeah absolutely. and listen, our position on that is actually um you know we we get it right if you're small, starting a small business, you're passionate about what it is that you do and uh there there's absolutely an opportunity within the education system, but you know in terms of the go forward today, uh we're big proponents of of engaging accountants, bookkeepers, and financial advisors within your small business process and workflow uh, they're the experts they know the ins and the outs and so we've definitely seen a trend of folks moving from DIY or do it yourself yeah. and trying to you know um, uh, uh, tough it out and, and move to DIT or do it together and really engaging folks and, and bringing them into the fold um, to really to really great success.
0: Well and of course and you recognize and I can tell by your voice too you recognize the passion and the drive mm-hmm. that it takes to become a small business person to have such such a commitment to an idea or a concept that you're just prepared to forego almost everything in order to get this thing off the ground. But your passion and your drive may have a lot more to do about the product that you have in your mind than the ability you may or may not have to get it to market. So you're going to need some professional input. And that's not a bad thing. And it's not an admission of failure. It's a recognition of how to succeed, isn't it?
3: Absolutely, absolutely. it shouldn't It shouldn't be seen as a failure by any stretch. it's um It's okay to ask for help, and uh, particularly based on these results, you know we think there's a huge opportunity for small businesses to improve their survival rate, improve their ability uh, to be successful by just um, putting their hand up and saying, "Hey, I'm not really sure here." and can someone help me out?"
0: Uh, Faye, one of the other things that the survey uh, turned up was the, um, uh, particularly with millennial small business owners, was their degree of trust in social media, which is very high.
3: Yeah, that's right. So when we asked... Um, when we asked respondents in the survey, you know, how much do you trust social media, to, especially to get information as it relates to, you know, financial concepts, 40% of millennials trust social media moderately to completely. Um, and, you know, you contrast this with other generations, like 28% of Generation X and only 17% of baby boomers. And so there definitely does seem to be you know, um, uh, a much higher degree of trust in the sort of as a, a viable news source for, for millennials, you know, whether it's Instagram or, you know, TikTok, YouTube. Um, these, these channels are being used to actually gather and glean information uh, as it relates to financial literacy.
0: Interesting. You were talking about, uh, this is uh, my final question, and we are grateful for your time this morning, Faye. You were talking earlier about uh, measures being taken by small business operators to ensure that their business would enjoy more possibilities for success in 2021. 2020 taught us a lot of lessons about being prepared or what happens when you aren't. Uh, So what about optimism or pessimism going forward? If they're pivoting to make self-preservation moves to keep that business afloat, does that automatically mean they're optimistic? They're going to stick with this and then we're we're, going to be okay.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think, I think there's increasing optimism. Um, there's definitely, you know, when we looked at the majority of millennials, they, they definitely um, had some continued and sustained pessimism. Uh, even, even in the face, we asked, hey, now that we've got, you know, the vaccine on the rise, and how do you feel? And still, mm-hmm. you know, a, a, a very good portion of those surveyed actually said, "I'm still remain pessimistic. So, um, you know, I think in general, there's a bit of cautious optimism uh, based on the results of the survey and a, a little bit of wait and see um particularly as it relates to vaccine rollout and you know hopefully what we'll see a rebounding of
0: the economy in the coming months. Indeed, uh the millennial small business owners in Canada tend to overestimate their financial literacy posted by Faye Pang. It's all their friends at zero.com and by the way zero is spelt, here's the surprise it's early in the day X e r o 0 x e r o com fei pang is canada manager for 0 in toronto thanks for this Faye. great survey and i appreciate your time and a wonderful interview as well
3: yeah thank you so much sterling
0: there you go fei pang in toronto 0 x e r o com check it out in terms of canadian business owners and financial literacy or, I'm afraid, the distinct lack thereof. Andrew and Julie and I received a press release from Metro Vancouver the other day describing something called hydrothermal processing and decided this is a really interesting, but it's a little chewy for us. Maybe we should call somebody at Metro Vancouver Water and have them come on the show and sort it all out for us. And uh, Paul Kadota ever so gracefully obliged. Mr. Codota is the Program Manager of Utility Research and Innovation for Liquid Waste Services, and he's here to talk about this hydrothermal Hydrothermal processing. Paul Kadota, good morning and welcome, sir. Good morning, Sterling. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you, Paul. What is hydrothermal processing, please?
6: Yes, indeed. Hydrothermal processing, or if I can call it HTP, okay. is a process that uses wastewater to produce what's called a bio crude oil. So this bio-crude oil is 100% renewable energy that has similar qualities as regular fossil fuel or fossil crude oil. And it makes it possible for the refinement of that bio-crude into low-carbon liquid fuels like diesel, gasoline, jet fuel, even
0: bunker oil. Wow. So what sort of wastewater are we talking about, Paul, that would, would create the, the, the right uh, grounds for that transfer process, that, that process of, of becoming some form of fuel? What sort of wastewater are you talking about? Well,
6: just to describe it a little bit, uh, soon after you flush, there's a network of sewer lines that brings everything to our wastewater treatment facility. And our treatment systems then begin the process of clarifying that wastewater. And a key part of that process is removing essentially the poop and other organic materials, and that's the stuff that we're going to be putting into HTP. So the HTP process puts those organics into high pressure and high temperature that allows that conversion of the organics into bio-crude. So something that Mother Earth takes a million years to produce regular crude oil, Mm -hmm. HTP will produce bio-crude in about
0: one hour. Wow. So, and and uh, from an expense point of view, Paul, it sounds like we already have a lot of the technology separating and clarifying, to use your word, the water anyway. So, the only add-on would be at the at 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 the treatment end. Given the fact that a lot of the infrastructure is there, what sort of additional investment does this represent?
6: So, one of the things that we're looking at is. Uh, putting up a demonstration facility at the Anacis Island Treatment Facility. And the investment there is $19 million for this uh, demonstration facility to be uh, installed. Uh, But really, over the long run, when we go full scale, we expect to save over $60 million or more uh, using this technology.
0: And uh, to refine, of course, we are able to produce some kind of bio crude, which is refinable. So one would imagine then that this uh, this product, this liquid product, then goes to a refinery. Where would it be, Paul? The closest one to us is Washington State, or would we be sending it to Alberta? Or is the long horizon plan for our own refining process?
6: Well, uh, as a matter of fact, our uh, partner in this venture is Parkland Fuel Corporation, uh, who owns and operates the old Chevron refinery here in Burnaby. Aha! Uh-huh. And so they will take our bro- bio crude and produce green fuels. And one of the things that uh, we're discovering is that uh, as far as we know, Metro Vancouver will be the first in the world to operationally produce bio-crude oil uh, using poop and uh, refining it into green fuels.
0: Have you got a, t- a target start date for fuel to start dripping out of a tap somewhere, Paul?
6: Well, we're, we've got a lot of the preliminary design uh, done now. And uh, over the course of this year, we'll be initiating our fabrication of the HTP unit and then installation next year, and then we'll be uh, turning on the uh, system in 2023.
0: And turning on the system means uh, and that includes the refining process too, doesn't it, by the sounds of things?
6: That's right. So uh, you mentioned existing infrastructure. Mm-hmm. For sure, we already have the wastewater infrastructure sure. in place, and that's worth billions of dollars. Absolutely. Uh, and Parkland Fuel Corporation also has billions of dollars in infrastructure already in place. And uh, we're essentially going to be adding on this process in, and capitalizing on what we already have installed and operating and so it makes it possible to take real action uh on uh combating climate change
0: it certainly does and i suppose the the thing that a lot of people are learning first thing on a saturday morning is it's all happening right here in their backyard and it's very exciting news paul thanks very much for uh, taking a few moments to uh, tip us off to this and uh, we'll talk more as we proceed through the project thanks a lot
6: Thanks for having me, Sterling.
0: It's a pleasure. There's Paul Kadota from the uh, Metro Vancouver Utility Research and Innovation with Liquid Waste Services. And there you go. That uh, is already underway. Hydrothermal processing right here in B.C.